Well, if we, we've talked about this in herbal circles before, what's the definition of herbalism? But even more interesting is what's the definition of an herbalist? But, you know, I think the definition of an herb is any plant used for its, its curative, healing, or many herbalists today think nutritional properties too. So if an herb has some supportive action on, you know, on human or animal constitution, because people use herbs for animals too, for dogs and cats, um, then it could be called an herb. But, <clears throat> so that's, <clears throat> that's a more uh, specific uh, definition. But in more general, in botanical terms, an herb is the leafy flower, you know, leafy part of a plant. So an herbaceous plant is one that is very leafy and not woody. So that's, in, you know, in the more botanical sense of the term, that's what an herb is. But in the herbalism sense, in the healing sense, in the wider, or more specific sense, it's any plant that can interact with humans or animals and, and have a good effect, have a beneficial or salutary effect. As opposed to poisonous, as opposed to poisonous plants, which obviously many herbs have um, poisonous properties. But then, if the dose is in the proper dose, if it's a small dose rather than a large dose, then you can get a therapeutic effect, even with poisonous plants. Um, as far as what you know, what is herbalism? Herbalism is well. We separate herb herbology from herbalism. That's an interesting point. Is that many people call herbalist herbologists and herbologist is somebody who studies about herbs and an herbalist is somebody who actually practices herbal medicine who actually uses herbs for working with disease and health so I like to make that distinction between herbalism and herbologist um, and so an herbalist in in my t sense of it is that an herbalist not only uses herbs for their therapeutic or healing qualities but also, an herbalist is concerned with the health of the planet, the, the health of, um, of themselves. So they, herbalists act as, as good models because they're primarily concerned about health of the planet, of our ecosystem, and of human beings and animals, you know, all life. We're, we're interested in health. So I think over and over again, I keep coming back to herbalism, it's really about health and using plants specifically for working with health and healing. Botanically, an herb is an herbaceous plant, a green plant. So in other words, you wouldn't call uh, a pine tree an herb, particularly. But in the herbal sense, you, would, you could call it an herb. You could even call the pine bark an herb because it is a substance used for healing from the natural kingdom. And in Chinese medicine, they even broaden it even more because they think of minerals like quartz and um, cinnabar, which um, is a poisonous metal, mineral. They think of those as herbs, or bat guano, or, or flying squirrel feces, or pollen, you know, all different types of things. They consider those herbs because they're from the natural kingdom. You know, they're from the animal or plant or mineral kingdom, and they have healing properties. So it depends on whether you're talking about the botanically or whether you're talking in the normal herbal sense of Western herbalism. Usually an herb is a plant substance that promotes healing, whereas in Chinese medicine they go even wider and say it's from the vegetable, animal, or mineral kingdom because they use bare bile, they use you know, um, claws and skins and everything for healing. So.
Well, it depends on whether you're talking about a Western herbalism or Asian or Chinese herbalism. In Chinese herbalism, they have written records going back probably about 1800 BC, so that's, what, 3600 years. And they think that those records came from times a long, long before that. Whereas in Western, I'm more familiar with the history of Western herbalism, and I have a very large um, collection of books on Western herbalism and, and enjoy studying it. But I, the first written records of Western herbalism, some of the herbs that we use today, like ginger and, and so forth, are from about 1800 B.C., which is about 3,600, well, 3,700 years ago. But before that, we have indications through um, archaeological digs that people used plants even back in as far as the Stone Age, which is, what, 18,000 years before Christ. So, in other words, they've dug up archaeological sites and they found herbs that are not, that are very bitter and that they wouldn't be using for foods. They found, you know, chopped up herbs and things in burial sites. So we feel that the humans ate, used herbs for healing probably thousands and thousands of years ago. And in some ways, even more interesting is how humans, the question that always comes up, how did humans figure out what herbs to use? And there's a lot of study right now going on with chimpanzees and other animals. They, scientists are observing chimpanzees, and chimpanzees, interestingly enough, can select herbs that are very bitter, that they wouldn't use for food. They actually take the, the leaf, for instance, and eat the leaf whole. They swallow it whole without chewing it because it's very, very bitter. But it also, then we've studied the herb and we found that it has properties like antibacterial properties, antiparasitic properties that can kill parasites. So, for some reason, and many herbalists feel that we have an innate knowledge of the healing uses of plants and that we have more or less a psychic connection or a spiritual connection with many plants and that we've forgotten that because of our modern, our mind. You know, my friend Paul Lee, who is a, has a PhD from Harvard in philosophy, said that the, Rome, the, the Greeks invented thinking. So before the time of the Romans, we didn't really think in the rational way that we do now. So all, we have so much vitality that's going up in our head and our nervous system, and this takes a lot of energy away from our intuitive side. So many herbalists feel that intuitively we have an innate connection with the healing properties of plants, and that we've forgotten that because now we're all up in our head. And I have to admit that many people that I see in the clinic, this is their main problem, is all their energy is going up in their head, they don't have any energy left for anything else. So this to me is like a very fundamental question of herbalism, is how did humans figure out what herbs are good? And I'm sure there are some mistakes along the way that the plants kill, you know, kill people. And, uh, but we figured it out over the centuries. And you know, after the Greek times is probably the most significant flowering of herbal medicine in the ancient days. And this was really just before the time of Christ. Hippocrates, for instance, used many, many plants for healing. Hippocrates was the father of natural medicine and believed in using water, hydrotherapy, and diet, and simple herbs for healing. And this was 455 B.C. And then after that, probably the most famous herbal of all time was Dioscorides. Dioscorides was thought to be a physician in Nero's army, and he traveled all over the known world in Rome and the Roman Empire and using and collecting knowledge about plants from all over the Roman Empire, how to use them, and then wrote it down in his herbal, which is called De Materia Medica, which is the most famous herbal of the ancient world. And that was the absolute authority in herbal matters for 
literally 1,700 years. So, um, and then after that, there were there was a great flowering of herbal medicine in Persia between the uh, um, say 1100 uh, A.D. and about 700 A.D. Along in there, there was a great flowering of herbal medicine with people like Avicenna and Al-Kindi, uh, Al-Samarkandi, and so forth. And they basically took the Roman and, and uh, Greek knowledge of herbalism and translated it into Persian. And then from there, the, the knowledge spread into southern Europe around Italy, and uh, the, the most famous school is, schools were at Padua and Salerno, which are in Italy, and those were the first western schools of, herbal, of, of medicine in, you know, in general. And then it, from there it moved up into continental Europe and, and to England. And uh, from there, uh, there was a steady progression of herbal medicine up until the 1930s. And, uh, of course, in Europe, in, in Western herbalism, in Europe, it never really was lost. It's been an unbroken tradition for thousands of years. But when we came over into this country, to North America, then we, we really lost that thread for quite a while there, especially when modern medicine really came in. Most of the herbal substances which were in the pharmacopoeia and were official drugs left the pharmacopoeia in the 1930s and 1940s. And now, and so it basically skipped a generation. That's, that's why I think my mom wasn't into herbalism. It really, herbal medicine has skipped a generation, and now we're really rediscovering our roots, so to speak. Herbalism is hopefully going to give a grounding influence to everything. Uh, you know, remember the plants and go out into nature, and let's don't destroy nature. And it's like cutting the roots of our own humanity, because throughout our history we've had a very close relationship with plants, and they provide oxygen, they provide nutrients, of course, they, and they also provide healing energy for us, and, and if we plow them all under and pay them all over, then we're going to end up, you know, going the same way as the dodo bird, <laughs> basically. We're going to be extinct in a few years. and. So I think herbal medicine, I mean, in a more practical sense, herbal, a lot of people are reaching for herbal medicine because pharmaceutical drugs are proving to be very much a double-edged sword. On one hand, we can take aspirin to get rid of a headache, we can take antibiotics to get rid of an infection, but we find that if we do that to an excess, that we don't pay attention to what the what the, the bottom line is, what's going on behind the scenes, what causes those imbalances in the first place. Why does the headache come up? Why does the infection keep reoccurring? It's because we're not paying attention to health. We're not creating, looking to how we can create balance in our lives. And so by looking at herbal medicine, we are looking, because always with herbal medicine comes those wider issues. We don't just say, here's echinacea for your cold or flu. I mean, that would be just like using drugs, you know. Here's another. Here's a different drug for your cold or your flu that maybe is a little bit more. It's safer because it doesn't have quite as many side effects. But we're, you know, herb, what I'm saying is herbal medicine really is about using the echinacea in the proper context of eating properly and resting and not pushing too hard, and also learning about our own constitution so that we know what sort of diet is best for us, what sort of activities are best for us to create health. So that's where I would like to see herbal medicine go, is really be a messenger for health 
and also our reconnection with the natural world. Now, on a practical level, you know, where herbalism is going is part of herbalism is going that way. There are many herbalists out there um, that feel the same way that I do, that we're really concerned about health here, and that's our real message. But then, you know, herbal medicine is the, um, you know, the flavor of the day right now. It's really going into drugstores, and it's really hitting the mainstream. You look at, um, was it Life magazine, the re recent copy, and there's herbal medicine right in the front page and so forth. So it's really hitting the news media. People are interested in herbal medicine. It has a good story to it, a colorful story. It's a very ancient medicine. We're rediscovering our roots. It's safer. I mean, the drugs obviously aren't working for some of these chronic ailments like hepatitis and chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS and cancer. Obviously, the drugs are not really doing the full job there. So what does herbal medicine have to offer? Maybe there's some magic bullets in herbal medicine. And so then you get a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming in. Now, as soon as there's something that's really hot, then people, the money is attracted, and that's what we're seeing in our herb industry now. It's a lot of money is coming into the herb industry. The big health food stores are being bought up by larger and larger corporations. Um, in the next 10 years, we will see a lot of consolidation in the herb industry. As it's maturing, some of the smaller companies that have, been, that have stood for quality are going to be bought up by larger and larger companies and it's going to be more and more mainstream and more and more about bottom line and profits. And of course, we're, most herbalists are concerned about that, that that happened. We don't want to see that happen. I know it will happen, but we're just hoping there won't be a backlash that people have too high expectations for herbal medicine and think that, oh, here's the panacea, here are the magic bullets, echinacea, I'll never get another cold, and so forth. And then, and then another five years, they go, oh, well, that stuff doesn't work, and then they go on to something else. My feeling is that herbal medicine is, will keep going as a popular medicine for many, many years and because it really is an unbroken tradition in most countries of the world, not North America, but in most countries like Europe and Asia, China, South America, most people still rely on herbal medicine for their daily health care and we're starting to rediscover it. So I feel it's going to keep going, but meanwhile there is going to be a lot of hoopla, there's going to be a lot of hype, of course. There's going to be a lot of profits to be made. I mean, the whole herb, of, the whole deal about the herb ephedra, is the one that is the biggest issue right now. Ephedra is a herb that is like natural speed in some ways. It's a very strong stimulant. It's a very ancient herb. It's been around for thousands of years, and it's used to in Chinese medicine to dry up the mucous membranes and allow us to breathe freely in colds and flus and things like that. With other tonic herbs to prevent the the um, or counteract the side effects of overstimulation. But the herb industry, some people have thought, well, this is a stimulant, so let's market it as a stimulant. And also, it can, it's a metabolic stimulant and a central nervous system stimulant and an adrenal stimulant. Let's market it for weight loss. So a lot of people out there have been marketing ephedra, ma huang, which is an ancient herb, for non-traditional uses, namely weight loss products and speed products, because our society demands those and of course that's been huge people have made millions and millions of dollars on ephedra over the last 10 years for these purposes multi-level marketing too so now the fda so there were some deaths associated with ephedra there were some now there are some problems and herbalists have been saying for the last 10 years that this is going to this non-traditional use and over hyping the herb in every 7-eleven and quick stop 
for you know quick energy, it's going to be a problem. And sure enough, you know, ten years later, here it's a problem that's back on our doorstep, and the FDA for getting bad press. So herbalism basically is getting bad press for this one small part of the herbal industry, which is making big bucks. It's high profile. The the main product, of course, is herbal ecstasy and other products like that. Is touting it as a as a basically as a recreational drug, so herbalists, you know, and I, I like to go on record of saying that that is not herbalism. That is hype, and that's um, that's you know I, I'm not saying that there's no place for that. You know, in sports, if a person is very robust, okay, using a little of herbal, you know, ephedra or something for energy in a balanced way, maybe you could make a case for it. But it's way way overused and overemphasized. And uh, the FDA now is looking at it, and they may ban it. You know, they may actually take ephedra off the market, and we would hate to see that because it's a traditional herb that has a very strong place in traditional Chinese medicine for respiratory complaints. And and like you would use Sudafed, is a good example to open up the bronchial and dry the airways. So herbalism, just to kind of summarize, herbalism really is about health, but. What we're seeing is in the herb industry and the wider realm, especially in North America, is that it's about it could be about big bucks, and well, I would like to see it continue to be about health. And there are so many more practitioners. There's better training. There are better schools out there now of herbal medicine. There are four or five resident schools of herbal medicine in this country now, and I'm really happy about that. And so the training is getting better. The education, the books. Everything, the information is getting to be higher quality, so I'm hoping that that will that will really um, tell people and put the message of of health out there for herbal medicine and using the herbs properly and with knowledge and wisdom. I just uh, had a conversation with a with a trained psychiatrist yesterday. He was a medical doctor and. And has done a long residency in clinical psychology. He he's interested, very interested in natural medicine, and wants to uh, figure out a way to work with us in our clinic in some aspect. And he very much believes in using herbal medicine. I did a lecture at Stanford University, there where, where doctors and medical students were very much interested in herbal medicine. So it's really reaching out into the mainstream. I know a number of doctors who use and recommend a number of herbs. So. And it's, I think it's coming from two um, impetuses. One, doctors realize that, I mean, the statistics now are that it's like 60 or 70 percent of people in this country are actually reaching for some type of natural medicine. They're interested in it. And so just financially, just economically, they, want to, they have to learn. And pharmacists, my friend Mark Blumenthal with the American Botanical Council is very much involved in training pharmacists how to use herbs and how to recommend them and what forms are the best and so forth. So it's, you know, we're trying to, to educate uh, doctors and physicians. Of course, it isn't in the medical schools yet, but many doctors are going. For instance, in my training course, we have a school here in town. We've had a couple of medical doctors in our training courses that have done our, I've had one that did a one-year training course with me. So. Uh, and I know a, an herbalist that went to Yale Medical School. So it's going, you know, it's going back and forth there, and the worlds are mixing very strongly right now. And I think that, well, the best story that I have <coughs> is my dad is, lives down near Palm Springs and Palm Desert, and you know, it's a pretty, it's pretty mainstream down there, really. 
Uh, it's not a, not a place like Santa Cruz, which I often say that we're living in a dream world here. I mean, most people are into alternative medicine. I'm shocked when I see somebody smoking because it's just so abnormal in Santa Cruz. Um, but in Palm Springs area there, it's really more a lot more mainstream. So my dad had this prostate problem say, about a year and a half ago, pretty severe. He was getting up in the middle of the night and had to urinate a lot and having a terrible problem with it. So he went to his doctor and and told him about it and the doctor gave him a drug prescribed something and my dad started taking it and you know a couple of months later he said I'm having all these side effects you know and, and he started telling me about all these side effects and I said well have you been taking anything new lately and he said well the doctor prescribed this drug from my prostate gland a couple months ago and so I said well stop taking that and I'll get you on sal palmetto which is our, our top herb for um, you know regulating inflammation and so forth in the prostate gland so he went on that and a month later, he said, you know, I feel great. I, all the side effects are gone away, and my, also my symptoms are totally cleared up. And he went back to his doctor, and the doctor said casually, well, you know, how's your prostate doing? He says, well, it's fine. All the symptoms are gone. He said, oh, the drug's working? He said, no, I stopped taking that uh, about two months ago. And the doctor said, well, then what happened? He said, well, my son gave me sal palmetto. He said, sal palmetto? Oh, I take that. So, you know, I, my question is, why didn't you give it to my dad? You know, I mean, he takes it. That's a, I mean, it tells you right there that the world is being bridged between herbal medicine and natural medicine and, and you know, and modern medicine, but it's still not quite there yet. You know, some doctors are afraid of prescribing these herbs because they're afraid of the repercussions on their license and so forth. But I think many are just going ahead and doing it. Quack is an interesting term. Quack was uh, formally used, you know, the original use of quack was to, to describe regular doctors who use bloodletting and heavy metals and, and dangerous drugs. Those were the quacks. And today it's kind of turned around that somebody who's using unproven and untried medicines are called quacks. But ironically, <clears throat> well, to me a quack is somebody who is misrepresenting themselves. They actually misrepresent what they know, what they can do, and what their medicines can do. And there, yes, there are herbal quacks out there. There are natural medicine quacks, probably a number of them. And there are also medical doctor quacks who, who you know, go to four years or eight years of medical school and get their medical degree, and they don't know the first thing about healing. They don't know anything about human interaction. They don't know anything about... Um, the disease process or the health process of health. They don't know how to advise their patients to be healthy. They just offer them drugs and send them out the door. And the average, what is it, the average time that a physician can spend with a patient now is like, I think, seven minutes. And the first interruption happens after 45 seconds after the doctor goes in with the patient. This is the average. So my feeling is, you know, who's the quack? You know, we're, what, what's going on here? And, and yet, we in our clinic, we spend an hour with a patient. We go over their health history. We go over their family history. We try to give them the tools in order to be healthy. We support them. We work on their bodies. You know, we give. We do acupuncture. We do shiatsu. We try to bring awareness by showing them how to massage themselves and touch themselves, and and where it might be the energy might be stuck. And we also help them develop better diets for themselves. So, I think people. 
you know, how modern medicine is blending with herbal medicine. Modern medicine will be highly influenced by herbal and natural medicine. That is already happening. And, of course, herbal medicine is being influenced by modern medicine. Modern medicine is not all bad. Modern medicine is great for crisis invention, obviously, or um, prevention or intervention. And, for instance, if I got an accident, which I had an accident when I was in England, I went into the hospital there, and they x-rayed my hand and, you know, and everything. And if I had had a broken bone, they would have set it and so forth. That's great. You know, I modern medicine is remarkable. It's fantastic. And I support physicians and doctors. I'm not against physicians and doctors. But I don't believe in overusing all these pharmaceutical drugs, which is not so good on our environment, because when they're produced, it pollutes our environment with all these chemicals. And it's not sustainable. And uh, I believe in promoting health. And at the same time, there's always going to be disease. So this is my bottom line here with modern medicine and alternative medicine or holistic medicine, whatever you want to call it, natural medicine, herbal medicine, is that the office of the future, when a patient goes in, yes, the allopath will be there, the modern medicine practitioner. They're trained in disease. There will always be disease. So if you have disease, go in and see the doctor. They know all about the body. They know all about disease. But at the same time, you have to be trained in how to be healthy. The doctor is not trained in health. They don't know how to help you be healthy. They can only, well, in, in one sense, through the back door, they give drugs and treatments, hopefully, that will get rid of the disease or mitigate the disease, oftentimes creating another disease in the process, which we know. Iatrogenic diseases are very, very um, widespread. On the other hand, why not have in the same office someone who's practiced in health and trained in health for 20 or 30 years? They can t teach the, the patient about diet and about breathing properly and about proper posture and stress release and, and herbals, herbs, you know, herbal medicine that, that can help support their body system. Herbal medicine is very much about working with a patient. My favorite saying is the one that Ben Franklin came up with, which is, I would rather know what sort of person has a disease than what sort of disease a person has. So in other words, modern medicine is focusing on what sort of disease the person has. Is it a, you know, a lesion in the digestive tract? Then it's an ulcer or whatever the lesion is. If modern medicine can't identify an actual lesion, it's very difficult for them to diagnose disease. Whereas the, the, the uh, herbal practitioner wants to know what sort of person has the disease, and we will go spend great lengths looking at the person from inside and out. We don't care about the disease so much. We want to know what the imbalance is, what the person's constitution is like, what they're doing in their life, so that we can create a harmonious um, you know, whole for that person in their environment, and then the disease will cease to exist. It'll just go away. Herbs are always in, in, go hand in hand with a total uh, program. My teacher was Paul Bragg, who taught me how to fast and taught me how to eat properly. He was my first health teacher. And he was very much, people would ask him, what do you do for arthritis? What do you do for asthma? And he'd say, I have no, I have no specifics for you. You know, it's a total program and for health. And so I'm very much in that vein that the misconception that people are always just have this panacea, you know, Western consciousness, we have panacea consciousness. We always want to look outside of ourselves, what's the magic bullet that's going to do it for me? 
maybe you know they go to all these doctors and the the drugs don't do it so then they go to the herbalist as a last resort maybe this magic bullet that the herbalist has can do it but my message is you know we have to look inside of ourselves and we have to see we have to take full responsibility for everything that happens to us and every disease that's the first step of healing then after that yes herbs can very much help support and balance and bring and restore energy and and uh, and do incredible things the history of herbalism is about empowering people because uh, you look throughout the whole history people on their mantelpiece uh, over the fire the two most important books that they had in the renaissance in the in the middle ages the herbal and the bible those were the two most important things because everybody had to be their own practitioner their own doctor their own physician and herbalism today is very much into that yes we have these huge companies putting out herbal products telling people that ginsana is the best ginseng i'm not picking on them but you know or or what so so and so garlic is the best garlic but at the same time i'm i'm and then people will say they're worried that that the reg, that regulation will regulate herbalism so that only you know it becomes very expensive and very specific no that'll never happen because herbalism is about grassroots practice on ourselves and empowering ourselves so we can always grow echinacea in our garden we can always grow valerian in our garden we can grow ginkgo we can get a bottle of grain alcohol and make our own tinctures we can make our own teas and a good herbalist will always first of all educate and so that's why the schools of herbal medicine are so important in our clinic we spend so much time educating people to take care to go home and grow the herbs make our own tinctures you know i'm not my whole function is not to sell products but it's to train people how to to do it for themselves so i very much agree with you there that herbal medicine that's the spirit of herbal medicine it's a people's medicine i think that there are is a place this is a quite a controversy in herbal medicine should we license or should we not license you know and should herbalists be licensed the only licenses now are naturopathic physician in some states and um of course acupuncture which is my license studying the traditional chinese medicine and herbalism and sometimes chiropractors practice a little herbal medicine but they're not really trained in that so mainly those two licenses for natural medicine and um i think that there with some disease i mean if if we experience a symptom that is very severe or it goes on for a period of time that is not self-limiting in other words if we have a cough okay most coughs are going to be self-limiting they might be an irritation it might be a cold or something you can drink some tea marshmallow root tea licorice tea or some echinacea and hopefully the cough should go away within a week or 10 days if it lingers if it keeps going on and on or if we have a cramp in our you know or a burning in our digestive tract after we eat but it goes on and on week after week then obviously that's the time that you know our own resources are limited we don't know we need more advice about and that's where western medicine comes in because at that point there could be pathology there might be a lesion there so we want to know what the lesion is so they can put a scope down there and look around and say oh yeah you have a bleeding ulcer and so that's even you know as a holistic practitioner or herbalist i would like to know that that tailors my treatment a little bit and so i think if symptoms have been going on for a while or if they're very severe then we might want to go into a practitioner that's been for instance if i know people that 
that I am the primary healthcare provider. They come into me first if they have something going on, and then my, as as a licensed practitioner, I'm advised and I'm trained that if I feel like I can't handle it, that if it's something quite severe or if it's beyond my knowledge, then I refer out to a physician. That's my job and responsibility. So I, th I think that there are many cases where people would want to go in. And not only, even beyond that, even if it's a self-limiting thing that's fairly chronic, like a cough keeps coming up, or I have a patient right now who has a chronic sore throat for a year that comes and goes. Well, it's not life-threatening, but they want to find out how can I, what's going on here? So they come in to me and I try to look at all the different issues and aspects and give them herbal tea and, and see what we can do. Is it an allergy? Is it, and in this case, this person was chewing gum, like every day, day after day, all day long, chewing gum. And as soon as they got rid of the gum, they never even thought about it because it's just so much part of their life. As soon as they got rid of the gum, drank some soothing teas, the sore throat went away. So, I mean, there, there are cases when interacting with a person that has a lot of experience is very good. Or even people come in, they want a program. They don't, there's nothing particularly wrong with them, but they just want to have, they want to learn about herbs for increasing energy and well-being, for preventing cancer. One out of three people in, in the North America will have cancer sometime in their life. So how can we prevent cancer? How can we prevent, you know, pr hopefully the, the word prevention is going to get out there in the public consciousness more and more, and herbalism is about prevention. So people want to come in and get a preventative program and a restorative program and a daily program that can build them up and make them stronger and, and be able to live a happier life. You know, there's a, there are a number of very ancient systems. There's traditional Chinese medicine, which has been around for a long time, practiced throughout Asia. Then there's Ayurveda, which comes from India. And then there's Tibetan medicine, which is kind of a blend of Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. And then there's what I call ancient Western medicine, which is or ancient European medicine, which comes from the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Middle Ages and all through. And this is really the, the medicine in North America and in Europe that we primarily follow. There's also Tib medicine from North Africa, um, North American medicine. The Native American Indians had a very, very highly skilled herbal system of medicine and healing and treatment, even using porcupine quills for acupuncture and fungus, uh, dried fungus and powdered fungus for moxibustion, for heating up points in the body, uh, and of course a very sophisticated herbal medicine using indigenous herbal medicines, um, and of course a lot of spirit medicine. They were very much involved in, in purification and, sp and spirit medicine, which also the Egyptians were into. This was very much a spirit based medicine and um, uh, looking at the emotional issues and mental issues and psychological issues, which we're getting back to today. It's interesting, we, modern medicine has kind of come full circle to traditional medicine, which believes in, for instance, in Chinese medicine, there are five pathogens or disease-causing agents listed. There is hot, cold, dry, and damp, which are obviously we're affected by in our climate, in our, in our world, but also the five emotions are considered disease-causing agents. And the five emotions are fear, anger, uh, grief, sorrow, grief and sorrow, uh, pensiveness, which is too much thinking and worrying and so forth, and joy. And so those five emotions affect our five internal organs.
Today, there are a number of different dose forms, all the way from, I can run it in a kind of a continuum. Probably the, the most simple or the most basic is growing the herbs in our garden, like Echinacea, and eating a leaf every day, just going out in the garden, interacting with a plant, showing expression of, of you know, appreciation for the plant, sharing its healing energy, picking a leaf of Echinacea, and then munching it down. That's pretty simple. Or um, going out in the wild, for instance, I have mugwort growing all around my house wild. I go out and eat a leaf or two. Or your basant, I go out and eat a leaf or two. So that's like self-dosing with wild plants. That's pretty basic and fundamental. All the way from, you know, growing the plants ourselves or harvesting wild plants ourselves, grinding them up in vodka and soaking them for two weeks, shaking it every day, and then squeezing the liquid out, and that is called a tincture. So then we can make our own tinctures at home. We can take a teaspoon and a little water uh, three or four times a day. So that's pretty easy. Or we can go into the health food store or the natural food store and get and buy ready-made tinctures. We can buy also herbs that are dried and ground up in ca and put in capsules and tablets. This is simply ground up dried herbs. I'm not really, that's not my favorite dose form. So I think it has such a short shelf life. Um, and then a variety of powdered extracts are made, powdered extracts and standardized extracts. Powdered extracts are made by taking the herb, soaking it in a menstruum, either boiling it in water or alcohol, taking the liquid, and then spray drying it in a vacuum chamber to create a powder. And then we get that powder, and that's called a powdered extract. So what we've done is remove all the inert properties or, or constituents of a plant, like cellulose and lignin and and things that we, sugars that we consider non-active, and we've concentrated the active principles of the plant and then into a very concentrated powder form, which then we put into a capsule or tablet. This is called a powdered extract, and many products that are out there in capsules or tablets are powdered extracts. Then we can also do standardization, which is taking that powder, or sometimes a liquid, and looking at inside that plant with chromatography, usually high-performance liquid chromatography, or HPLC, to find out how much levels of, of a given or a proven active fraction or constituent, like flavonoids or alkaloids, are in that plant. And then we write it on the label, guaranteed to have a certain amount, like a good example is a garlic that's standardized to a certain percent of allicin, or milk thistle to salimarin, or ginkgo to flavone glycosides, and so forth. Uh, there are several ways that herbs can be used in conjunction with modern pharmaceutical drugs. And uh, I think more and more you will be seeing that. For instance, um, mixing, okay, antibiotics, antibiotics are widely prescribed for infections. We know that. Um, the one problem with antibiotics that's coming up is that antibiotics tend to not only kill the bug, like strep or staph, they also suppress immune system, host immunity. So why not, doesn't it make sense to take something, a natural remedy that can support host immunity while also we take a, maybe a specific drug to target the bacteria? Okay, so this, I think you will be finding more and more in the future that echinacea will be blended perhaps with an antibiotic regime. So that's one example there. Another example that's happening right now quite a bit is that in China and Japan, chemotherapy and radiation is used to treat certain types of cancers but also chemotherapy and radiation very strongly suppress immune system the host immunity 
which doesn't make sense when you're trying to you know get rid of a cancer we want our immune system to be as strong as possible so in Japan there are approved drug natural drugs from the shiitake mushroom from reishi from other mushrooms and other plants they're approved drugs to be used in combination with chemo and radiation therapy for treating certain types of cancers and they have found using a number of double-blind studies with humans that the survival is increased the length of survival time is increased and quality of life is better and they do also use that same regime a lot in China another example are um, for instance psychiatric drugs like Pan, uh, Paxil and, Zan and Xanax and so forth uh, Prozac obviously I have a number of patients who have used those types of drugs my job is to at the same time support their liver in fact many types of pharmaceutical drugs you want to support the liver with something like milk thistle standardized extract while they're taking these pharmaceuticals because most pharmaceuticals especially aspirin acetaminophen um, antibiotics tend to be hepatotoxic so that makes perfect sense is that you're taking these highly concentrated purified drugs to try to target a certain disease or pathogen Main, meanwhile how can we support the body with natural medicine at the same time. And I think you'll see a lot of this in the future. In China, they're not so uptight about just letting Western medicine or modern medicine freely mix in the hospitals and in practice with traditional medicine and herbal medicine, holistic medicine, energy healing, whatever. It's all blended together. And they don't have any problem with that. In Western, in this country, and in many Western countries, we keep it very separate. And I think part of, well, probably most of the reason, even though people come on like it's a big moral issue, I think it's mainly economic. You know that that modern medicine has carved out a certain niche. For instance, in drugs, in in cancer treatment and and cardiovascular treatment, I mean, open, I mean, uh, bypass surgery and certain drugs treatments this is like their bread and butter of many many hospitals many many practitioners of modern medicine this is their bread and butter they don't want you know you don't mess with with that kind of stuff because that's all that's very strikes to the economic heart so they don't necessarily they're not going to embrace particularly right away they're not going to embrace um, modern I mean uh, holistic medicine and herbal medicine particularly in China uh, it's different because they, you know, they have already in place um, herbal medicine, traditional medicine. It's part of their culture. And then the Western medicine, the modern medicine, has come in, and they've integrated that in. So it doesn't have this strong economic, you know, hold on the society like modern medicine does in North America and, and in Europe and other parts of the world. So. I, th I think it's, pr you know, it's just primarily economic why we're not embracing it. But you will, s you will see it more and more. It's the same thing as in uh, alternative power um, and, and an environmentally conscious uh, industry is that the old industries are having a hard time integrating, they're resisting integrating more eco environmentally sound technologies because, you know, that's their economics, that's their, their power base. and the customers so forth but this is like old paradigm thinking this is like this is like ancient thinking uh, this is this is exactly what happened to us 
in, in the automobile industry is that we weren't smart, we weren't open, we weren't flexible. The Japanese were. Look what happened. They got this small environmentally conscious car that people wanted. They, they produced it and, look, and, you know, and we stuck to the big old tanks and look what happened. Same thing with modern medicine. We're going to get passed by by the rest of the world. 90% of the patents on natural medicines are taken out in Japan and in Germany. So we're, we're going to get passed by again if we don't you know, lose this rigidness and, and narrow thinking and open up our minds and really embrace herbal medicine and natural medicine and integrate it with, with modern medicine. That has to be. You can go to any nursery and get echinacea and thyme and rosemary and lavender and sage and many and then there are a number of and more and more they're actually nurseries local nurseries are bringing in more medicinal plants even Chinese herbs are, are available but there are a number of mail-order places like uh, Gardens of the Blue Ridge and in the Carolinas that sell ginseng and golden seal starts and and uh, Richter's up in Canada that, that specializes in medicinal plants, starts, and seeds. And so you can get a catalog, and more and more in the catalogs they talk about how to, to uh, grow them. And let's say Stephen Foster's book, Herbal Bounty, has some good information about growing herbs. There are a number of good books now that tell how to, for the amateur herb gardener, how to grow them properly. But usually herbs are not really fussy. They, they like a nice, deep, rich soil, well-worked, um, good mulch, you know, uh, natural fertilizer like fish emulsion, seaweed, uh, and, you know, nitrogen from, uh, you know, fish emulsion is what I generally use, and seaweed um, extract. But uh, they're pretty easy to grow at home, and, they, and many of them don't require much fussing or care, really. You can just put them in there and and let them go. It's not alternative medicine. It's, it's the medicine of the people and it's a medicine that, that should stand side by side and not give anything away, not feel ashamed or have to hide out in, in you know, health food stores or say that we're dietary supplements or say that we're food flavoring extracts as we had to say for many years tinctures are flavoring extracts and we're all afraid of the FDA, you know, we're, we're medicines. This is the people's medicine. This is medicine that can stand side by side with modern medicine and take its rightful place. So this is what I want to see. And I also want to see um, it go in a good way where we're still conscious of our roots in the earth and, and that we keep in mind that herbalism is always about health and healing. People want herbs. That's why we got our bill, our law passed. I mean, it, it was literally the most ground, the, the most grassroots support of any issue in the history of Congress was this last natural, uh, what we call the the Dietary Supplements Act. This had the most public support of anything anywhere, any time. And so people want herbal medicine. That's pretty clear. The regulators are getting that message. And yeah, the FDA has a long-standing history of negativity with herbal medicine going back to the days of the, the quack patents you know where um, people would put out this remedy and say it would cure everything and you know it's good for what ails you and all that kind of stuff so I can understand they have some history with herbal medicine and natural medicine they viewed us all as a bunch of quacks 
and now they've ha we've worked very hard with FDA, uh, the American Herbal Products Association, which I've been on the board of directors for eight years. We've worked hand in hand with FDA for a number of years now, trying to educate them and encourage them to to really come into the modern age with herbal medicine. That it's not a quack, voodoo medicine. That it really um, is reputable, and that there isn't a bunch of people out there to to take old, you know, the elderly's uh, life savings away from them. That's not what it's about. It's about health. It's about the, you know, supporting people in their health process. And um, so, my bottom line with the, the regulatory issues around herbal medicine is, some people are negative and say, "Well, I'm afraid that the that the government is going to regulate it out of existence. It won't be available anymore." My bottom line is that there's not only no way that that's going to happen. There's no way to stop it. There's no way that the government could stop it if they absolutely put all their forces and all their energy into stopping herbal medicine. There's no way that it could happen because it's it's just too grassroots. It's too in the consciousness. It's besides, it's in our very genetic, you know, and our ancestral consciousness. So, and all the way back through history of time and the history of humans, it's been it's been a very strong part of our existence. So, there's no way to get rid of it in one generation. It's it's here to stay. And, and there's no way to get rid of it. That's my message. <laughs>